Welcome to the Axiom Insights Podcast. My name is Scott Rutherford. This podcast talks about trends and best practices in supporting organizational performance through learning. In this episode, we're talking about change and the evolution of the training profession and the industry. And we're talking about what we can learn from the past two years to help our organizations and our learning departments manage and adapt to whatever the next challenge will be. So I'm joined by two longtime industry leaders and colleagues. Doug Harward is co-founder and executive chairman of Training Industry, the industry analyst and publisher of TrainingIndustry.com and Training Industry Magazine. Doug is the co-author of the book, What Makes a Great Training Organization? And that book, along with 10 years of subsequent ongoing research, is the foundation of the CPTM certification, or the Certified Professional in Training Management. And I should also say, I worked with Doug for four years as Director of Marketing at Training Industry. My second guest is my current colleague, Herb Blanchard, the President of Axiom Learning Solutions. Herb has decades of experience in L&D talent solutions and human capital management. And over the years, he's architected learning solutions in nearly 50 countries and 30 languages and engagements of nearly every type and every size. Both Herb and Doug have led learning programs for businesses as they've managed through periods of change, whether that's economic crisis, like we saw in 2008, or the more recent COVID-19 pandemic of the past two years. So to start out, I've asked them, what can we learn from history about the role of organizational development and training? What can we learn from the experience of managing learning during the COVID pandemic? And where do we go from here? So let's begin with Doug Harward. You know, it it is an interesting question because as we, if we look back at the history of the profession, the training profession, we've obviously had a lot of what, what I like to call evolutionary shifts in the profession. As a matter of fact, in our CPTM program, we teach these evolutionary shifts. Um, and then we have within each evolutionary shift, what we call ebb and flows, right? And, and oftentimes those things are driven by societal changes, which I think the last couple of years, what we've experienced or by technological shifts, right? For example, the advent of the, the personal computer or, or different things. Um, I believe we we have learned a lot in the last couple of years because it's really the f- the first time in what sixty years since we've had a global pandemic. So in most every business professional's work life, they've never been through one of these. But since uh, you know the sixties, fifties, and sixties with the last one, the the biggest thing we've learned we we think we've learned uh, in the last maybe twelve months. Is uh, the idea that that people can and want to work differently? Uh, meaning, you know, working remote is is now uh, a norm as opposed to a special occurrence, um, and that that it's more important to hire talent and let them work where they they live or where they want to live or where they they can be more effective and efficient as opposed to trying to force everybody into a centralized location. Um, you know, it, it's also put some strains on leadership. You know, we've, we're having to learn how to lead a little bit differently. Um, but I would say it's not a, a revolutionary or evolutionary shift in leadership, but we are having to do some things a little bit differently. But there's also some ebb and flows that's occurred during that same period. It's just not the pandemic, for example, um, you know, some of the societal shifts associated with, um, you know, uh, uh, civil unrest and uh, 
And, you know, the, the racial movement and things that's happened, it's changing how we look at leadership. It's changing how we look at communications in the workplace and those kinds of things. And what it means for us as learning is it's changing how we provide and deliver training programs. For example, using a program like uh, or a remote platform like a Zoom or a WebEx or somebody like that, you know, it was more of an exception just a couple, three years ago. Now it's the norm. So, um, so it, you know, we are learning a lot of things. And I think the, the real learning still haven't been fleshed out. I think maybe a couple of years from now when we can really get past and through the pandemic, we can look back and say, okay, now really what did we learn? And did the market shift back to where it was before or just a little bit of an ebb in reverse from where we were? So I, th- I think there's still some time to tell. And now let's bring in Herb Blanchard. Herb, you were saying that just before the first COVID lockdown in early 2020, you were having a lunch conversation with a colleague and talking about the shift to virtual as an opportunity for the learning function. This was about, this was less than, my lunch was about 48 hours prior to them declaring a global pandemic. And um, a friend of mine, Amy, out in Chicago, we're having lunch and, and things were starting to lock down, but it wasn't completely official as of yet. And she said, what an amazing opportunity this will bring learning in the sense of um, the conversions to virtual that ended up happening. They've been converting to virtual for years, right? Virtual training has been around for a while. Um, but her perspective on it was um, we didn't do it right, right? There were too many things that we could have done a better job on that we didn't do a better job on. There were too many too many uh, classes and learnings and topics we could have done better virtually that we didn't think we could do virtually because we thought we had to do it live. This will make us go back, reassess, break what we did before, uh, make better what we did before, break it, do it again, add some more in the, in the virtual catalog. And she was looking at it as a, as a major opportunity for learning. And I thought that was a very interesting perspective on it. And I'll also say she kind of predicted the future because everything she talked about happened. I think it did happen. I think it happened the way she said it was going to happen. Um, and I, I think Doug's point about not everyone being in one centralized lo- location, I think, well, some firms kind of did it that way. Others did not. And and we have a client right here in New England that, that uh, you guys will both get a kick out of this. You know, they, they were dead set on, centralized location, no remote workers. Sure, you might have a day or two out of the office or something to work remote, but that was that was it. And it was sort of that old-fashioned insurance company mentality. And uh, they are now changed uh, via Doug's point in terms of no centralized location. As, as they're coming back, there's no need to come back. So now they've been convinced. They've come together as a learning organization and worked better and collaborated better because they were remote. It's really a, um, you know, really a fantastic story. So let's dig into that a little. In L&D, as with many other business functions, uh, there's always a strain between what you may want to do if you had unlimited resources and what you can actually do given your reality, given what you actually have to work with. So looking at the pre-pandemic execution of virtual learning, is what we see just a refocusing of resources uh, where it wasn't a priority before? I believe that 
kind of the shift in, in remote learning, remote work, it, it, it became a societal kind of change versus an economic change, right? So oftentimes in learning, we make decisions about how we're going to provide or access learning programs based on purely on economics, meaning what's the, what's the least expensive, most effective way to deliver access content. And in, in, in our previous life, or I say previous, like previous pandemic life, if you may, um, a lot of the decisions were made more on, on in, an, in kind of an altruistic way, thinking of it as being, well, what's the most effective way to do it? Well, being in person is always the most effective. But when the, when the pandemic hit, what it did was it taught us that, you know what, the most effective way may not be the most realistic way. Right. We're not going to be able to put people on airplanes and travel them to training or we're not going to be able to put them in, in, in smaller rooms and conference rooms because of spread of virus or different things. So we, we look for other ways to do it. And economically, this was the solution, which was, hey, let's start doing a remote. And what it also meant was learners had to adapt as much as we as the training organizations had to adapt to how do we deliver content Learners had to adapt and say, you know what, I think it's acceptable for me to go through a course and do interaction with a team in a, in a in kind of an interactive course while I'm sitting in a monitor in my pajamas or whatever the case may be. Right. And and I think we we saw a lot of the people kind of adapting very, very well. That's what's allowed it to make the change that we've seen. But uh, I also think that it's become a very economic kind of decision about how we can now do it the best. And I, I really believe that economics will win out going forward, meaning, you know, we're already starting to open up quite a bit. We're all, we are starting to have some folks kind of say, hey, you know, let's go back to classroom learning, which we're going to see more and more of that. But we've also seen a lot of companies go, wait a second. Yeah, that might be a great way to do it. But economically, we can save a lot of money by not putting people in airplanes and in hotel rooms and different kind of things like that. So it, it, the factors are, are quite complex in what's going to drive this. That's why, you know, I, I'm still of the of the notion that we're, we still have a couple of years to see how this is really going to pan out and what we're going to learn from it and how the shift is really going to kind of normalize. Um. Yeah, and it's an interesting shift. And this is something uh, Herb and I, we, we had a, a conversation offline briefly about uh, uh, recently is, is sort of the economics of uh, and the economic trade-off of, of, you know, how do you apply the dollars you may save from not flying people around the country and paying for hotel rooms? And mm-hmm. in, in, do you save that money in pocket? Do you invest it into improving the virtual experience um, and is there is there a you know is there a risk that that companies are going to want to pocket the savings more than than enrich the virtual learning experience? I don't know, Doug, if you're seeing any of that. No, there's absolutely no question because what we did see was a pullback. You know, economically there was a pullback in expenditures about by, by, by some companies uh, in terms of wait a second, you know, if we're going to have a revenue hit or we're going to have higher expenses because of the cost pandemic, we've got to find some savings. Well, training is generally one of those areas uh, where when there's economic pressure on a company, we tend to cut costs in training. I'm not, I'm not in agreement that that's always the right decision, but I'll just say it's it, we're, we're accustomed to it, right? 
Um, and what we saw was companies didn't realize, oh, wait a second, we can't stop training because now we actually have greater demand on our workforce because we have to work differently. So we actually saw this kind of very, very short pullback revert back to actually really strong expenditures in the profession. Companies actually spending more money on leadership development, but more money on doing other things, but they weren't spending it on those non-value added costs as much, which is training and travel, which by the way, tends not training and travel tends not to get buried into the, the training budget. It gets buried into a travel budget inside the line department. So we didn't see it in the training budget hit quite as much. And this ties into a related conversation of the reallocation of learning resources toward different programs. Uh, Herb, one thing you and I have chatted about previously is, is the emerging need for leadership training in the context that as companies have a workforce that are both working in person and remotely, how training, leadership training at all levels is one way that organizations can start to bridge the gaps and uh, address issues that are created by a workforce who are physically not together. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think you're again opportunity for the for the for the learning leader, right? To to to, to look at contributing to the to the company a different way. Like, um, you know, the pandemic creates uh, this non-centralized workforce changes a lot, right? Now, the way you view leadership training and how you how you are a leader now has to attack how do you be a better remote leader and how do you you know, how do you lead when, you know, you have no centralized location or how do you lead when you have half a centralized location, right? And so we're, you know, we're working on some programs right now that, are, that we feel are, are um, you know, almost brand new based on research, you know, and Doug's research and research from McKinsey and research from, from large consulting firms that, you know, what's the best approach to hybrid, you know, almost hybrid management. People come in, you know, it's time to come back in the office. Some are coming, some are not. And we're doing, working on programs right now or how do you be more, uh, you know, a more effective leader with, with while managing remote. So it kind of takes all that, you know, investment and all that, that uh, strategy into leadership programs and it puts a bit of a twist into it in the sense of now you also throw in, that how you approached it before is different than how you're going to approach it now. And, and I actually wanted to make a, um, a comment on, on Doug's last line, whereas I think economics was the driver, but I think, and actually, I guess I could pose this as a question, Doug, like if you think about my story in Chicago, there are organizations out there that feel that they've been able, and, and I hope, this, you know, we're on the same page here. They feel they've been able to convert certain things to virtual that they didn't believe they could have before that have been as uh, successful as the, the live approach. So there's still going to be that adaptation from the learner. I agree. But I think some people are coming back with success stories that we didn't think we could convert this to virtual, but it really worked. It was a success and it's just as effective as ILT, because we were forced into that that paradigm shift. Right? I think that's exactly that- right. And and if I can add, Herb, uh, I'll give you a, a, a small testimonial, if you don't mind. Even in our own world, I was one of those that I believe there were certain type programs as best delivered in person uh, in a team kind of setting. Our CPTM program is a great story on this one. And the early days, my team was kind of saying, Doug, 
you know, we really need to, to, to invest energy into to, uh, converting to a virtual delivery. And this is pre-pandemic. And I was kind of reason I thought, you know, it's really important to work together and that kind of thing. When the pandemic hit, we, we moved 100% to virtual. And it has been a huge success story for us. Uh, it's given us access to more and more global learners, which we put in the same classes. Uh, every time we do a CPTM practicum, we may have 15 people, of which 25 to 30% of them are international to, to North America, you know, so Europe and India and, and Asia. And we could have never done that if we were doing it in person. So we, we've got learners that are actually in the programs with people from all over the world. So it's been a huge success story. And, um, and it, actually, I was probably the one that's most resistant. And so I've learned as much as anybody, if not more, about how to make that shift. That's great. I actually didn't, didn't remember you started that just live. I, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, my, there's my memory for you. But on the flip side um, of what you're mentioning, Doug, we, we also have, and this is where I think you're saying it's going to take a, take a couple of years to, to figure some of this out. We've had instances where, uh, you know, just by the nature of the timing, we've we've been, you know, we've participated in in delivery programs where our facilitators are in the field training, and they're training on topics that, for whatever reason, you know, people don't think lend themselves to a virtual approach. It's decided it won't be virtual. Then the pandemic hits. It's changed the virtual. Now you have all these economic factors coming in that people are realizing they could take advantage of and should take advantage of. So as we move through phases of this delivery program, now train the trainers are actually the same or slightly short of virtual as they are live. And in that particular instance, I actually think that's more challenging for the new trainer coming in. And and I'm like, in my eyes, I'm like, okay, it's okay to take advantage of the economics, but how do you make those economics work for you and, and, and get the facilitator what they need so the students and the learner experience is better and the learner gets what they need, right? So I think we got to be careful of not taking too much advantage of the economics, if that makes any sense, right? It's right, sort right. of like, yeah, too much of a blessing, but. Well, and if I could add, one of the things um, – you know, I'm very conscious of and trying to understand is um, is trying to keep in perspective what what we have experienced over the last couple of years. Because, you know, 10 years from now, it's very possible we're going to look back on this area and say, you know what? It really wasn't what I call an evolutionary shift in how the, the industry uh, behaved and how it changed behaviors and those kind of things. But, but it was an ebb. Or a flow, and what I mean by that is that we have seen over the course of 150 years of our profession true evolutionary shifts. Right? I mean, I'm I'm talking about really, really big shifts, like the advent of personal computer changed our profession completely. The advent of globalization changed our industry completely, mainly for, because of sourcing strategies. And it's very possible we're going to look back and go, you know what? Right now. We're caught up in recency bias and it looks like it's different. It feels different. But the reality is it, 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 I'm not sure it's going to completely disrupt what we do because trading, we plowed right through this. The industry has done extremely well through 
the last few years, last couple of years, and we expect it continue to do well. And actually, it has brought new things. Another great example of what happened in the last couple of years is the growth in DEI training, right? Um, and now, right. is that a disruptor? I don't think so, but I think it's a, a, a great improvement in what we've done. We've brought phenomenal awareness to that segment of the market. But it hadn't really changed how we do things. I, I'm a big believer that going forward, I'm, what I'm really hoping we're going to see from this is the learning of where we learn more about what I call the science of learning, not just the neuroscience part, because, you know, that's kind of from a medical standpoint, but more about how do people learn best and how can we really start designing learning programs based on those things. For example, the work of Dr. Anders Ericsson and deliberate practice, the idea of reinforcement and, and, and deliberate practice and micro learning and all these kinds of things that, that, that improves, truly improves performance on the job. I'm hoping that that's really when we go 10 years from now, we look back and go, you know what? We really started learning. That was the year when we started learning about how people really learn. And how do we read, how do we design programs for true high performance on the job? So anyway, I'm not trying to use too many cliches, but, but I think that's kind of, there's a subtle thing here that I think we're going to take from this. And because of recency bias, we're so caught up in the pandemic. We're so caught up in the counterculture. We're so caught up in a lot of things that's been happening. Now we're caught up, for example, in what's happening in, in uh, global wars and whatnot, I think there's going to be some other things that might come out of this that we can't even foresee yet. And I, that's what I'm excited about. So as you're thinking of the scientific frameworks around learning, it leads us to another related conversation about how do we match the right solution to the need? Let's shift to thinking about learning technologies and solutions. As Doug knows, there's a map published every year by Training Industry that looks at the many vendors who serve the various sectors of the learning market. And over the past five years or so, the number of companies in the market has grown very quickly. Um, a combination of new tech entrants and new offerings from existing companies. So just like you're saying with learning services, when you're navigating technologies, learning managers have to consume a tremendous amount of information in order to be able to prescribe the right solutions. And so, uh, Doug, is that a challenge that you're seeing in the market right now? Yeah, it's a great question, Scott. And the answer is yes. So let's talk about that a little bit. So if you go back, say, the last 20 years in our industry, again, another ebb and flow, we, we have had a sourcing ebb and flow. So 20 years ago, the advent of training BPO or training outsourcing became a really, really big deal. Companies were looking at very, very strategic sourcing engagements on very large scales. This is where I came from, how I got into this, into this business, for example. Um, and what has happened is over the last 20 years, <clears throat> the large complex engagement has kind of slowed a bit. There's still some of them out there, of course. But what we have gone to is, is we are sourcing more and more learning services and learning content than we ever have and learning technologies than we ever have. Uh, but they tend to be more transactional, if you may. Now, what happened during the last two years, during another kind of a interesting change that we haven't talked about today, but probably should be thinking it, is this concept of the, of the or idea of the great resignation. 
and what happened with people started leaving jobs for whatever reason. How has that affected our industry? Many of those people are going into consulting businesses or training businesses because they have knowledge about something. And they think they can monetize that or productize and go sell it through training courses. So just in the last 12 months, the proliferation of new training companies, they are exploding. And so, Scott, your point is right on, you know, how we track the companies. You know, just a few years ago, uh, our impression was there is roughly about 7,000 training companies in North America alone. Now, that's a rough number, not not a you know very defined number, but somewhere in that ballpark. And that includes the bigger companies. And that also includes what I call mom and pops, you know, somebody working from the third bedroom, delivering a course or being a contract instructor. Now, I think that number is increasing and we're going to continue to see it increase. Now, will it ebb back again? Uh, it usually does when there's an economic downturn, like a recession. People can't afford to do that. So they go back to the working environment because they need to make a living. Um, and we've seen this kind of ongoing ebb and flow in, 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 uh, in suppliers of training. Some, some of those training suppliers where they, they leave and start their own consulting business, they've got a course they want to deliver or whatever the case, a consulting kind of gig. Uh, they get successful and they end up hiring a lot of employees and becoming what we would consider a company per se. Many of them stay as independent consultants um, and make a great living. And that's the beauty of our profession, by the way, is you can make a great living as an independent consultant. Um, but but I think that is one thing we have seen in just the last oh, 12 to 18 months, a huge growth in the number of independent consultants. Take DEI, for example, we were just talking about earlier. The number of, of new training businesses or consultants in the DEI market has exploded over the last 12 to 18 months. And, um, and we, you know, again, we tend to see that as societal shifts, things happen. We tend to see some of those kinds of things. Yeah, no, I, I think Doug's right on. I think a lot, um, not only with what's happening in society, but I think, um, you know, it's called the gig economy, right? It's been here a little bit and it's growing, right? And um, a lot of people like the, the freedom and the um, you know, the, the concept of having the independence and in, in training on what they want to train on and, and the train on is, is uh, as opposed to being in a large organization. I think, you know, we, we're fortunate in the sense, Doug, and you know what we do is our job is to, is to build that, you know, talent pool and cultivate and curate for, for the client, right? And um, right. Uh, it's, yeah, it's kind of funny. You mentioned the, you know, the large, more complex, um, deals have kind of gone away the, the, you know, without naming names, it was 2007, right? The last, in my eyes, anyway, the last really major uh, complex outsourcing deal and learning and, and um, blessed to say I was a part of that and, 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 and won't forget it. And on the, and Scott, you know, on the, uh, on the brain science side, you know, in terms of what Doug's talking about, we're, you know, we're starting to, to build that out now. And in, in, in the program I was talking about, um, you know, where, where they're, you know, they have remote work is coming back. We're complimented by the client in terms of we could bring that research about performance and brain science. We could bring that to them so that their curation and their research is already done. That's a, that's a value add we're providing, right? So it's interesting to know that um, a lot is on the learning leader 
but I think the complexities of, of the, the, the supply chain and the vendors out there is that is now become a value add to bring that curation and to bring that data and to bring that, you know, performance uh, improvement um, suggestions. Well, so, I, I love the way, Herb, the way you referred to that, because I think of you exactly that as a curator of talent. And we need that help. Right. Uh, you know, buyers of training services or buyers of training content needs needs somebody out there when they're because there's so many choices today. They need somebody that's out there vetting it and making certain that, yeah. hey, these are real or they they've accomplished what we need for them to accomplish. Here's what their credentials are, all those things. And I mean, I think that's the beauty of what you do for our profession and our industry is is you curate that and. I don't. I don't want to say you weed out the not so good, but the reality is you help those who really need something special find that and make that sourcing decision a better economic kind of transaction, right? You know, you take some of that non-extraneous cost out of the transaction and make it more efficient right. for them. Right. Well, it's also it, taking it, some it, of the risk I, out of that decision as well exactly by working right. through that mechanism, right? That's exactly right. And, and risk is cost, right? So, well, I think the, the the last two years has been, and maybe spotlight's too strong, guys. But I think um, the last two years has given the learning leader an opportunity to shine, right? With with some of the the added complexities of what their role is, and I think that that uh, that bodes well for for the industry, and it bodes well for for L and D in general, and it bodes well for the learning leader. I but, I, yeah. I think. They're, they were ready to have the spotlight on them, and and I think it's worked out well. One of the things I would say is we talk we talk in the CPTM quite a bit about what role you have as a learning leader in the corporate boardroom, right? You know, because there's been the adage that we don't have a seat at the table, we haven't been viewed strategically, whatever. The reality is I've never seen a time in, in our profession, I've been in it for a long time, 35 years, I've never seen a time more than today where executives of corporations expect more of us and want more of us. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing, right? That they now look at us more and more and saying, you know what? We believe that training is critical. We believe that our future success is dependent on how well we train and prepare our, our talent pool and how well we take care of them and how well we support them. So training leaders, we want you to be successful. We want you to do the right things. Now, what they're not saying is we're going to throw money at the problem. They're wanting us to be efficient, effective, and show them and demonstrate to them that we know what we're doing, that we know how to source, we know how to design, we know how to deliver, we know how to administer, all those things. But the beauty is, is there's the, the expectation for what for our success is greater today than it's ever been. And I think that's the, the best thing we can hear for our profession because it means that we've got opportunities galore going ahead of us. But I also think for many of us, it means the pressure is on. We've we've got to deliver on that. And that's why I think it's important from a sourcing perspective that we have businesses, Herb, I'm, I'm not trying to put you on the spot or, or get, give you an unnecessary shout out, but we need businesses like yours that curate the market, that make sense of the market, that, that, that takes some of the inefficiencies out of the market. Cause that's where there's a lot of costs buried in those 
kind of those inefficiencies of how do you find the right one? How, you know, or if I go hire the right one, the wrong one, I'm sorry, because they said they've got knowledge about something. It turns out nah, they really weren't right fit for us. Your business helps us make those decisions. It, it mitigates all that. And, and I couldn't agree with you more on, on and, I, and I used the term spotlight and that was probably too strong, but maybe it wasn't too strong. I don't know. I think, uh, Doug, I wrote an article uh, a few years back and I probably, probably should share it with you, Scott. I don't know if I shared it with you, but it was even prior to the pandemic, the, the old fashioned, I can't get a seat at the table. I thought, and again, I'm always cautious not to, to upset any mm-hmm. friends in the industry, but I always thought that was getting old. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, to me, it was simple. It was if you want a seat at the table, you have a seat at the table, but you just have to be prepared to have that conversation to convince the executives that you belong at the seat at the table and you can contribute to the bottom line. That's what they want to hear, right? So I think 20 years ago, maybe even 10, that kind of made sense. I don't see it anymore. I haven't seen it for the last five or six. And I think the last two years have kind of, uh, you know, uh, made that go a little bit quicker in the sense of, there's very few organizations out there where if, if a learning leader wants a seat at the table, they can't get it. So I think it's the spotlight's there and in uh, in a good way. I agree with you. And, and and it puts it puts a little more on us and people in our services and our uh, you know in terms of what we do. And 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 that's a good thing. I think it's again good all the way around for the industry. I I still believe that this idea of the seat at the table, you know, it, it is kind of a cliche, but. I, I think we still have a ways to go for learning leaders to build the respect. Because think about it this way. We still don't have what we call true learning leaders in C-level positions, right? Now, we have yep. heads of talent, yep. but that that's more of a broader role that has that looks at human resources and all the different things of payroll and da, 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 and learning is, is under that, is a part of that. But we really don't have roles reporting to the CEOs of large publicly traded corporations who who every day they talk about training. Now, will you ever? I I don't know. I don't know. I just I don't see that in in the near future. But I do believe this. I do believe that more and more, the more that learning leaders can have the conversation at senior executives about how we develop talent instead of how many people run through courses. That may be a very, very simple kind of delineation, but but the reality is we, our learning leaders haven't, we haven't really made a big jump yet in in having the conversations about how people learn and, and strategically how do we drive talent enhancement and, and, and performance. We're still learning how to do that and how to have that conversation. We've come a long way, and that's why I don't want to take anything yep. away. As a matter of fact, I want to give credit where it's due. We've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. I, I think we're still in early stages of that. It's not just about being aligned when you're creating the uh, the solution. It's about being aligned about how you report on the outcomes. That's exactly right. Because we tend to report on how many students went through instead of how the business evolved or how the business right. evolved. Yeah, that goes back a ways, right? And and that's isn't that the hardest part, right? Is to is, is to prove how the is to prove how I call it the holy grail. Yeah, yeah, it, it's in. So I think that's going to be a fun journey. It's going to be a long and arduous journey, right? I guess I'm looking at it from we've we've taken a big step, 
right? So it's it's uh, that holy grail is going to be a uh, a tough one because I think different people view that improvement in different ways, right? And and where's the improvement coming from? And um, it's still one of those things at conferences, Doug, where people pass the mic around and you kind of like <laughs> hold on to your seat, right? So that's right. Well, <laughs> so it's it kind of a it's been an interesting shift because the reality is what I call the holy grail of the profession, which is being able to measure the true return on investment. It goes back to what Dr. Kirkpatrick's research told us way back in the late 60s and early 70s, where he basically said, you know, a level four evaluation isn't it has nothing to do with the learner. It has everything to do with what the learner accomplished on the job and how the business improved. That, that level right. four is holy grail. We still have a lot of learning leaders that are saying, hey, I think we're doing level four evaluation. The reality is when you go look at it, now nah, we're not quite there yet. So the good news is Dr. Kirkpatrick, I mean, who is a genius, had phenomenal foresight in, in, into how we should be looking at it. We still have a ways to go to get there. So, Doug, if we're painting a picture of the possible future, maybe being a little optimistic, and looking at the possibility of doing true level four evaluations that link learning to business outcomes, is there a story that L&D can tell maybe two or three years in the future um, to say that we invested in leadership skills, we invested in business skills, we invested in building culture in a way that nurtures and advances talent and does it differently than our competition? So you can create competitive advantage. You can reduce the cost of churn and increase potential performance. It's a difficult story to tell, but is that what's needed to to tell an enduring level four story to line all of those pieces up? I think you're you're onto something that's really important, Scott, and and that's that's where we've been in our research. We're tr- trying to understand, you know, how, how do you look forward and how do you create strategic alignment? I, I will say this. One of the cautions we have to have as learning leaders is when we when we are confronted with business challenges and, and, and we believe that training is going to be at least a part of the solution to that challenge or in some ways a contributor to that, then we have to rethink how we how we utilize learning programs, training programs for them. For example, we oftentimes, we, we use an academic approach to learning management and we create content with the hope and aspiration that it's going to have some effect. And then we go back later on looking for some validation and confirmation that it did something. Instead of, and what we're learning now, this goes back to the science of learning, if we focus more on what the problem is we're trying to solve, and then we go design training for that problem, then it becomes very, very easy to measure the improvement of the problem because oftentimes the idea we know there's a problem means we've got data that says there's a problem. So it's moving from being what I call very academically oriented and creating content on an academic front to saying that you know, here's a portfolio of content, now let people consume it, to say, no, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to do it. Let's go find the next business problem and identify what it is we need to focus on create content or create programs, create solutions that helps us ad- address that problem. Then when the problem goes away or we've solved it or whatever the case, then we move to the next problem. Or we may have in parallel many problems we're trying to solve, but what that changes is the makeup of learning design where you may have content that has very short shelf lives as opposed to creating portfolios and libraries, of course, that live long time. 
we create very short life programs. And so that's kind of the almost the paradigm shift at the thing that we're wrestling with now in terms of understanding strategic alignment and how do you get to to level four, all those kinds of that. And I apologize if it sounds like I'm kind of rambling on different things, but you can tell there's so many things out there floating. The complexity of the learning, the learning environment is really, really, the opportunities are phenomenal is, is what I'm basically trying to get to. Since the book came out that, that you had written, uh, uh-huh. you and Ken many years ago, talking about strategic alignment, uh-huh. um, have you seen, I guess, how much improvement have you seen? And is there any data to back that up? And again, we're not, we know we're coming to conclusion here, but I, I'm, I'm interested to know, um, since you came out with that, uh, that, that, um, the book, have you mm-hmm. seen improvement and not just, and not saying that the book caused the improvement, I'm saying it goes not back, sure. it's got to be 10 years now. Right. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, we're work we're working now on the next edition of the book with new research that uh, addresses those best practices. I don't have data that shows what how much the industry has has moved from the standpoint of improvement. And then what we do have data on is how the practices have shifted, because, you know, what the book, what makes a great training organization we really do is we, we talk about those eight core competencies of high-performing training organizations and what the best practices are associated with those competencies. What we have seen is that there's improvement in organizations' capabilities, their abilities to, to, to deliver, to manage, to you know, all the source, all those kinds of things around those capabilities and competencies. Um, what, what we're trying to understand better is what the true effect on the organizations are. And I, I think we're just really, really early in that research, to be very honest with you. Yeah, as you're talking about yeah. strategic alignment, I remember the, the book and I'm thinking, okay, you know, that, that's got to be 10 years, right? So let's, yeah. let's, it'd be interesting to see how the organizations are improving and getting that alignment, right? Yeah, but, um, yeah. and we're, we're working on that God. next edition as we speak. Thanks to Doug Harward of Training Industry and Herd Blanchard of Axiom Learning Solutions. I'll have links to the training industry research behind what makes a great training organization and the CPTM program on the episode page at axiomlearningsolutions.com slash podcast, or you can visit axiomlearningsolutions.com and click on Insights. And please let us know what you think about this podcast. What would you like to hear about in a future episode? Uh, Send me a note, info at axiomlearningsolutions.com, or just use the contact link on the website. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please be sure to click subscribe so you'll be notified as new episodes are released. Coming up, we'll be talking about inclusive leadership and how to create and maintain a focus on building an equitable and inclusive culture or organization and how that maps to business results. And another episode, we'll be looking at a project built over more than two years uh, that developed a learning center of excellence at a large medical technology company, and it focused on delivering learning at the moment of need. So those episodes and more coming up very soon. Be sure to subscribe to be notified when they're released. Thanks for listening to the Axiom Insights Podcast. 